Well, it's a privilege and always a, a great joy to bring God's Word to you this morning. As you can see from the Scripture reading, we are going to be continuing to work our way through the book of Genesis. And this morning, we're going to pick up from where we left off last week, which is Genesis 18, starting in verse 16. Being a Christian in the 21st century is a real challenge. Certainly the cost of following Christ and remaining faithful to what the Bible says can't be taken lightly in a day like our own. I think our own, our own day, our own century even, is especially challenging because not only do we face critics, say, from the outside, but we also face critics from the inside. Those who would even wear the label of being a Christian and yet at the same time throw criticisms at Scripture and even the God the Bible represents. In fact, I don't think it would take you long to peruse a Christian bookstore and discover exactly this. Today you can find dozens of Christian books criticizing the God of the Bible. It's quite ironic, is it not? Of course, the Old Testament is usually the favorite place to go, calling the God of the Old Testament sometimes even a moral monster. For example, one celebrated Christian author argues that the God of the Old Testament teaches values that are, he says, sinister and evil. He goes on to say that even Jesus' own teachings were not immune from the fallen condition. And therefore, the Bible being fallen and broken, he says, has a very, very dark side. Another popular Christian author says that the Bible's descriptions about God and its ethical instructions, he says, they're disturbing, wrong, contradictory, and at times even immoral, and yes, barbaric. People, this is literature you can find in a Christian bookstore by Christian author. These authors look with disgust upon Old Testament stories where God unleashes his wrath and destroys sinners. And this isn't something that's merely reserved for those academic elites. In fact, many times these books are trying to reach you in the pew. Let me ask you, what is behind these outcries and protests of the God of the Old Testament? What is most notable, I think, is their total disgust that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. The fundamental message that these critics have is God is love. So when they come to passages in the Bible, like Genesis 18 and 19, passages like these, where God is said to exercise his 
his justice and divine judgment, they react in total disbelief, saying the God they know would never destroy and and eternally punish the evildoer. What are we to think about this? Have you ever met someone, perhaps even a friend, like this? My guess is that you have. I know I have. Might I propose something to you this morning? I don't think Christians today struggle to understand how God can be loving so much as I think our problem is that we have absolutely no category for divine justice, a God who is just. Richard Niebuhr once said something very profound about the liberalism in America. This was way back in the 1940s. And I think, though, what he said is just as applicable to us in 2015. Listen to what he says here, what it teaches. A God without wrath, notice that first phrase, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. My hope this morning is that as we turn to Genesis 18, you will see that the God of the Bible is not only a God who is abundant in his mercy, but that he is a God who is absolutely just and righteous. And if it were otherwise, we would have no God to worship at all. On your outline in your bulletin, I give you just two points that are going to guide us through this text. And I want to begin with the first point. In verses 16 through 19, we see that the Lord himself reveals his plan to destroy the unrighteous. And he reveals this plan to his servant Abraham. So I want you to be right here with me in the text. We're going to follow Genesis 18 in order to understand what is happening. In our pilgrimage through Genesis so far, we've spent considerable time, haven't we? Considerable time focusing on the covenant that God made with Abraham. We discovered that it's through Abraham and his offspring to come that God is going to bless the nations of the earth. And this blessing is going to start with Isaac. But its true fulfillment, as we have seen before, its true fulfillment is going to come in Jesus Christ, whom the New Testament calls, what? The son of Abraham. In Genesis 18, we saw that after years and years and years of waiting, the Lord himself appeared to Abraham once more, as represented in these three men suddenly appearing in front of Abraham and Sarah's tent. The purpose of this, remember what we called this last week? This theophany? The purpose of this theophany was to make an announcement to Abraham and Sarah, one that Sarah just couldn't believe. What was this announcement? The time was now here. The time had now arrived 
and Sarah would give birth to the promised seed, a son. Does it startle you? Does it startle you at all and make you a little bit uncomfortable that the very next passage we read in Genesis 18 has to do with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Does that seem odd to you, perhaps? In our English Bibles, we have created these artificial breaks called chapters and verses, even subheadings, which can be very helpful, of course. But actually, in the original text, there was no such thing. My point is this. The story of God, when he appears to Abraham and Sarah, this story announcing the miracle of the birth of a son in their old age. It is a story that is inseparably connected to the tragic story of the destruction of Sodom. Have you ever asked yourself, why? Why is it that these two stories are so closely connected? In fact, if you look at Genesis 18, one just flows right into the other without a break. Why is it that right after God announces the birth of the long-awaited promised heir, the one through whom the nations will finally be blessed, God also announces the destruction of Sodom? I believe the answer is twofold. First of all, since Abraham, since Abraham was to be the blessing, the instrument through which God would bless the nations, it was very fitting that an account should be given to him when any particular nation or people was to be destroyed, removed even, from God's blessing and instead put under his curse. Look with me at verses 16 through 18. The Lord asks whether he should hide what he is about to do from Abraham. What is he about to do? He is about to destroy this people because they are wicked. But the Lord finds it necessary, doesn't he? He finds it necessary to let Abraham in on what he's about to do. Because it's through Abraham that a great and a mighty nation is about to come. A nation through whom God will bless, as verse 18 says, all the nations of the earth. And that's the key phrase, isn't it? All the nations of the earth. My guess is by this time you keep hearing phrases like this. All the nations of the earth. And here it is again. Abraham, in other words, Abraham was to be the fountain from which all the nations of the earth would come and drink and they would be blessed and satisfied in the Lord. And yet, right after God announces the coming of the heir through whom all these nations are to be blessed, he also announces the destruction of this wicked people. 
Notice the destruction of a people that make up the nations. Abraham is about to learn a very important lesson, a lesson that you and me should pay attention to. God has told Abraham, yes, he is about to bless the nations through him. This is his promise. So, the people in Sodom and Gomorrah must be incredibly wicked and rebellious against their Creator. For the God of the universe to decide that they they will no longer, they will no longer be part of this blessing to come. But instead, they will, they will experience divine wrath and judgment. You see the connection? But there's a second reason God finds it very fitting to inform Abraham about what he is about to do. Having seen the injustice and wickedness of Sodom, knowing this is the case, and just how seriously God takes, a holy God takes sin, Abraham must teach his descendants to keep the covenant that the Lord has established. And this is a lesson that Abraham has been learning already in his own disobedience. God says in verse 19 and 20, look there with me, for I have chosen him, he's referring to Abraham here, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. You see, Abraham had an unbelievably unique role. He is the elect one. Are you picking up on the language here? The chosen one through whom God is going to carry out his covenantal promises for his people, Israel. They are to be a people, unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, they are to be a people who follow the Lord, who keep his commands, who do righteousness and who practice justice. And in doing so, in meeting these conditions, the Lord says He will fulfill His covenant promises to Israel. What implications then does this have? What what implications specifically does God's righteousness and justice have for how His people should live? For how we should live? Proverbs 21.3 gives us an answer. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable, more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. You see, our temptation is to think that God looks merely at our outward appearance, the external. As if our outward performance and rituals are, well, sufficient. 
But we must not forget that God looks where? He looks within, doesn't he? In order to find out if our heart is one that truly reflects his heart. You see, he is a God of righteousness and justice. And these same attributes are to characterize his own people. And that includes us. If they do not, listen to me here. If they do not, it doesn't matter whether we call ourselves Christians. It doesn't matter how often we attend church. It doesn't matter how many churchy programs we put on. None of that matters. People, God could care less if, if, in reality, we are not a people that are characterized within by the righteousness and the justice that defines the very God we worship. Do you understand that this morning? We're not here to simply go through the motions. We're here because we worship a God who is holy, just, righteous. And people, there are few things that could so undermine our witness to a lost world than when God's people do not reflect the holiness of his character. Sadly, in Genesis 18, the unrighteousness and the lack of justice that characterizes this people is something that is going to exhibit and display and manifest God's righteousness and his justice in a tremendous and awful way, which brings us to our second point. Number two, in verses 20 through 33, we see that Abraham, in light of this news, Abraham is going to do something so very bold. He is going to intercede on behalf of the righteous. And what he's going to find out is that he will be assured that the God he is worshiping, the God who has called him out of his home country, is a God who is absolutely just. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, we read that the outcry, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great, and their sin was very grave. In other words, their sin, which, by the way, I think includes here social injustice. We'll see that later on. Their sin, it cannot be it cannot be something that's just ignored by a holy and righteous God. Not if he's going to remain just. And so the Lord goes down much like he did. Remember with Babel? He went down to see their tiny, puny tower. He goes down again this time to see the injustice that rings in his ears 
from this people in Sodom. But Abraham, knowing the God who called him, is a righteous and a holy and a just God. He's now faced, isn't he, with a huge predicament. And what's that? Can God destroy Sodom and remain just? Certainly he has commanded me and my descendants to walk in justice. But is God himself just if he destroys the righteous in Sodom along with the wicked? Do you hear this concern in Abraham's voice? So what does Abraham do? Remember, Abraham is the one through whom the nations will be blessed. So in an important sense, in some sense at least, he's their advocate. And perhaps their only one. Whether they realize this or not. In fact, as these three men are there in front of him, Notice what happens. Two of them go down, and yet one stays. This is just a side note. I think there's a clue here in the text that though three men have appeared, only one of them seems to represent the Lord at this point. Maybe all along. And we could say one of them perhaps is the Lord, now speaking to Abraham. But notice what's happening here. This is something so subtle in the text that we just pass over. What does Abraham do? Did you, did you notice what happens before he even says anything? He, he stands there in front of the Lord. I mean, get this. Abraham has the boldness to stand there in front of the Lord. And if that is not enough, he then raises the question of whether God is just to destroy this people. He's he's talking to the Lord himself. Abraham knows, doesn't he, that what he is doing is bordering on insanity. Who is he to question God? Who is he to stand in God's way? Who is he to question God's justice? At the same time, we see in these verses Abraham's humility. Countless times and how he begs God. God, be patient with me and listen to me one more time. As he petitions God on behalf of the righteous. I am, a, I am but dust and ashes, he says in verse 27. And then in verse 30, he says, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. So Abraham understands who he is and who God is. And yet he is so bold as to approach God. Certainly he recognizes he's pushing the boundary between between God and God. And man, and he has to be cautious, lest he, like Job, regret his outspokenness, lest he accuse God himself of injustice. I have to admit that this is 
perhaps one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Because here we witness not just how merciful God is, but how just He is. Do you notice the title of the sermon this morning? The Mercy and the Justice of the Righteous Judge. I want you to follow with me in this narrative. Look at verses 23 through 25 where Abraham raises the issue of divine justice. Listen. Listen to these perhaps trembling words and yet very bold words from Abraham to God. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked, Lord? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Abraham knows just how, he he really does know just how wicked these people are. Forget that Lot, as we'll see in future weeks, Lot is there. His relative. So he knows. And yet at the same time, Abraham, he is pleading with God. Pleading on behalf of the righteous. And he does so by appealing to divine justice. How can God remain just, he asks, if he then destroys the righteous along with the wicked? You see the problem? I don't think righteous here means that that Abraham is referring to individuals who are just completely perfect. They've come to glorification and they're like perfect beings living on earth. I don't think that's what he's referring to. Righteousness is tied, remember, to God's covenant. Just as Abraham was counted righteous when he trusted in God's covenant promises in Genesis 15, so also would others be counted righteous if they trusted in the God of Abraham only to then walk in his ways rather than the ways of the wicked. Abraham's motivation, therefore, is that God's covenant people not suffer the same fate as those who are outside the covenant, those cursed, those even under the wrath of God. Isn't this the same motivation we see throughout the Bible by people like David? Listen to David. This is Psalm 1, a psalm that Tyler opened with at the start of our worship service. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Do you see the contrast? There is something about seeing the righteous eternally perish along with the wicked that violates the very character of God as well as his covenant promises. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying, I'm not denying here 
that God decrees and ordains that the righteous at times suffer pain and trials in this life, sometimes even dying in the midst of them. We all know individuals that we respect, and that is true of them. But what I am saying, and why I believe Abraham and David and others are getting at here, is that those who have entered into a saving covenant with God, they will not be abandoned by God. Whether it's in this life or the next, the righteous judge of all the earth will vindicate them. And in contrast, he will destroy the ungodly. Otherwise, he does not remain a just and holy God. That said, notice how Abraham, notice how Abraham, with this understanding of divine justice in mind, he returns to God with boldness, and he will not rest at 50 people. In verses 27 through 33, Abraham negotiates all the way down to what? Merely 10. And every time, God agrees not only that he will save the righteous. This is so shocking. Not only will he save the righteous but he will even spare the wicked for the sake of as little as ten righteous people. In other words, God is so long-suffering Sometimes I hear people say the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. And then you have Jesus in the New Testament who's a God of love and mercy. I think, what about Genesis 18? Do you see God's long suffering here in the Old Testament? He is so long suffering, so compassionate, and so gracious. And so just that he is even willing to spare all the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of just a few righteous people. So what's the point? What's the point? The point is this. We can be absolutely certain and confident, as Abraham would be at the end of this text, the God we worship, this God is the righteous judge and he will do what is right. And yes, even in destroying an entire people. Where do we go from here? This isn't on your outline. Perhaps flip it over and I want you to write down two points of application. Number one, don't, don't miss the pressing nature of, God, of, of Abraham's intercession, intercession. Don't miss 
the pressing, urgent nature of Abraham's intercession. This week at VBS, the kids learned. It was so it was so encouraging to see not only our own kids, but kids from the neighborhood dropping off their, their, their children, uh, the parents dropping off their children. It was so encouraging to see all of these kids here learning the story of Jonah and how Jonah fled from God for he couldn't stand the thought of God being gracious and merciful to these wicked people. Ninevites. Do you, perhaps this story is familiar to your children, but do you remember, perhaps from your days in Sunday school growing up, do you remember what happens at the end of the story? Jonah is ticked off. He's angry at God. This is after God has been so merciful and patient with them. He's angry with God because he knew God was gracious and merciful. He knew this was the character of God. He knew that if he was to go there and if he was to preach repentance, they might repent and God would forgive them. That is what your children learned this week. He was angry that God was slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Oh, if Jonah only would have remembered Father Abraham, right? Who interceded on behalf of Sodom. Do you see the contrast between Jonah and Abraham? Abraham was the instrument through which the blessing of God was to come to all the nations. And here he is pleading with God, knowing that the wrath of God is about to come down on this neighboring Nation, and justly so. And yet Abraham pleads and pleads that God would spare this entire wicked people if just a few righteous people could be found. Let me ask you a question. Do we as a church, as Fellowship Baptist Church, do we really possess this intercessory hunger within us. The hunger that Abraham had, unlike Jonah. Or are we more like Jonah? Pouting in anger at God's compassion at the wicked. I love what famous preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, listen to this, if sinners be damned, 
at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. Have you done that? If hell must be filled, he says, if hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. I am so grateful to God to say that I see this urgency in some of you. I saw it this week, in fact. I don't usually do this, but I don't think I can help mentioning it because it it just struck me this week so powerfully. And so I have to do this. I have to embarrass someone here. It's Amy Shan. I remember a day this week when Amy rushed from work, barely got to the front steps in time for VBS when all those kids were lining up. And when she got there, she, she quietly thanked God that she made it. She could be there to, to just have that opportunity to teach those kids. Another day, to embarrass her a little bit more, she was at the grocery store. She doesn't know that I knew this. She was at the grocery store and came across a family, a non-Christian family. She, she invited them here to VBS. And then they came. They came. People, that is exactly what Charles Spurgeon is talking about. And notice how quiet it was. How subtle. How ordinary. If you've been here visiting Fellowship Baptist Church and and you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus, I hope you know that this church is praying for you. We we are interceding for you, lest you perish. We hope that our prayers for you not only reflect what we see this morning in Genesis 18 in the heart of Abraham, but ultimately point you to Jesus, our great high priest, who interceded on behalf of sinners, by going to a cross in order to satisfy the wrath of God, the justice of God that you and I deserve. Which brings me to a last second, a second but a last point of application. Do you really understand not only how merciful God is, but how just he is? Abraham rested his entire case on these two attributes. 
My guess is that we don't struggle to accept God's mercy. Our struggle is accepting his justice. Abraham, he was sure asking for a lot, wasn't he? He was not only asking God to spare the righteous, even if there's just ten or maybe less of them, but he was asking God to spare the wicked too, if just some righteous people could be found. You see, we tend to ask the question in our society today, especially in the midst of our popular Christian culture, how can God destroy sinners if he is a God of compassion? How can that be? But perhaps we're asking the wrong question. Maybe we need to start asking a different question. How can God not destroy the wicked if he is to remain just? That's the question we should be asking. I love what one commentator said. But was there no end to the mercy of God? Was there a point at which unlimited mercy became shallow sentimentalism? Obviating the justice of God against the wicked? This week our attention, as I've mentioned, has been focused on reaching those children in our community and in our church. And no doubt we repeat to these kids over and over again, and rightly so, God is love. God is love. But when was the last time you said, God is just. God is just. The gospel itself is the ultimate illustration that God's love comes to us as a gift, but it's a gift that is wrapped up in the justice of God. We're so acquainted with the cross that we tend to forget that it's not just the love of God that's present at the cross, but it's his justice. Isn't this the the unbearable tension and really the problem that's at the center of the entire story of the Bible? If man is a sinner, how can God remain just if he justifies the ungodly? But it's the solution to this problem that makes the gospel such good news. Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, became our substitute, substituting himself as the sacrifice for us on the cross, taking upon himself the penalty that you and I deserve. And what is that penalty? It's the very wrath of God. Through Christ, you see, divine justice, it's been met. And therefore, God is able, and he's not only able, but he is justified in justifying the ungodly. Did you pick up on that in the passage we read earlier in the service from Romans 3? Listen to what Paul says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then listen, listen to this. This was to show God's righteousness. Why? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You see the problem? 
It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's the Gospel. Fellowship Baptist Church, when Jesus shed His blood on that cross for you and me, divine mercy and divine justice kissed one another. This is the beauty of the cross. The wrath of God that was poured out on Sodom, that wrath should have been poured out on us instead. But it was poured out on Christ, the son of Abraham, who interceded for us. And as a result, divine mercy flows to us freely. Let's pray. Lord, so often we forget that you are not only a God of love, but it's precisely, your love can precisely come to us because of your justice being met. And what an example we have in Scripture here in Genesis 18, pointing us forward to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who satisfies the wrath that we deserve. And through his sacrifice, you are just, and yet you justify us, the ungodly. Oh Lord, may this good news not stop here, but may it dwell deep in our hearts and may it be on our lips as we talk to others about the beauty of the cross. It's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.